Now we are going to be exploring a segment of David's life in which he found himself early on. And just so we understand, David was a man who was became King David, who was highly regarded. In fact, we would be able to say, arguably, the most celebrated king in Israel's history. And yet, before he became the king of Israel, he had a season of life in which it was um, filled with much strife, anxiety, and fear. It was a season of life in which he was catapulted immediately into national fame. And after being catapulted into national fame, he became a threat to the sitting king, King Saul who in his insecurity ends up exiling David from the land he loved and the place that loved him. And he ends up having a journey of multiple years of being on the run. And this interaction we're going to look at is an interaction in which David, in this season of his life, he loses loses all self-control. And we're going to look at it. And I'm hoping on the other side of this, we'll be able to glean some lessons that perhaps we may be able to apply to our own lives. But before we do, we have to acknowledge, I think we would all agree that the ability to control our impulses and inclinations is a major part of learning how to build a healthy life, is it not? And yet life brings us into points into moments of tension, frustrations build, maybe certain circumstances collide to impinge on us. And we get brought to points where we might feel, if we were honest with ourselves, self-control is about to be gone. And these moments, oftentimes, sometimes they can become turning points in our lives. Which means that how we respond in the midst of that tension, it makes an enormous difference to our lives. David found himself in just such a situation. Now, before we are able to kind of uh, interact with this together, we have to understand a couple things. Firstly, we have to understand that David found himself in a time in history and in a region of the world, the ancient Near East, that had a high cultural value on hospitality. In fact, it still does to this day. But that is where he found himself. It also, he found himself in a region of the world where if we could, we could see this, that they did not have any type of national security as we would define it. There was no, there was no universal system of justice that made sure everybody was safe, which meant landowners and people of substance had to figure out, procure a defense system for their own property whether it would be their vineyard, their farms, or the cattle, they would have to figure out how to defend what they owned. David also found himself, and this is good for us to know as we step into this, in a a moment in time in which to, to call into question someone's integrity or character or reputation would be the equivalent, if we could think of it this way, in a way to declare war on that individual. Because to mar a person's name was to mar and to soil all they really had. These are no small things. They become large factors in what we're going to step into. Now, David. David had been joined by about 400 men. Over time, 200 additional men joined him. He had what we would refer to as a small militia. And what he did was he ventured down to his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, in the southern region of Israel. And there he ends up utilizing his men to protect people who had property and substance. One of those men he ends up protecting their, the property of, is, his name is Nabal. 
And Nabal is a man who has, we're told, 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He apparently was in the wool industry. He was a man of substance, enormous wealth for his time. And what he, we're also told about Nabal is he was a man who, if we could think of it this way, he was not the kindest. In fact, he was known to be brash and mean-spirited in his business dealings. He was not one who thought. He dominated the conversation. He rarely asked questions. What he said is what happened. This is how he is accustomed to living. Now, after protecting the sheep and goats for a season, there came a time of shearing, which meant that they could collect on the investment that Nabal had made. And they, make, they do this. And in Nabal's house, what this meant is they meant that they have now a time of celebration. In his case, it became a week-long celebration. As the celebration is going, David thinks to himself, perhaps now I can collect something for what the protection I've made. I have something to do with this Return this capital that you are now receiving. And what he does is he sends a messenger and he doesn't ask for silver or gold or anything of that nature. What he asks for is he says, listen, we provided this protection for your men and your, your shepherds and your caretakers. Would you provide us the kindness of just feeding us, just giving us some provision for me and my men? They send the messenger to Namal. That, that is the context of what we're about to step into. If you open up your handout, we'll read Nabal's response. We're told here that Nabal's response lives up to his reputation. He says, who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread, my water, and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws? who come from who knows where? These are words that show us something of Nabal. He is used to throwing his weight around, right? He is using words that are meant to insult and harm and provoke. Why? Because what does he do? First of all, he starts off by saying, David, David who? Who do you think you are? Coming to me asking for something. I mean, how are you any different than another responsible employee who runs away from his master? Aren't you fleeing King Saul? Who do you, you don't deserve anything of what I have. In fact, you're worse than any other employee. You're a band of outlaws. That's what you are. Now get out of my face. Which if we were to hear these words, if we were to be a fly on the wall, as it were, and we would see this interaction, we would, in that day and age, we would think to ourselves, <laughs> them's fighting words. <laughs> because everything has just been called into question. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you just happen to be doing the right thing. The good thing. The kind thing. And then circumstances flip, and all of a sudden, your mind is elsewhere. It reminded me of a moment about a year ago where I was driving um, to our church. It was a Saturday afternoon, and it just so happened that that was a weekend I was going to be sharing. And so I was coming here on a Saturday afternoon, and I like to look for parking along 18th down, down the street. And so I got to 18th Guerrero, and, I, and it was a red light. And so once it turned green, I, I sought to make a right-hand turn. And as I'm doing that, some people are crossing, and there was a space for my car to get in to, to 
kind of just make the turn. And yet there was somebody across the street that was about to cross, and they had a skateboard, and you know, seemed to be, in, I don't know, maybe late 20s, early 30s. He's walking, and, and so I, I do you know, what, what is kind. I just say, all right, go ahead. You know? And it's almost as if the, as soon as he saw that I, was, I stopped, that he started to walk slower. <laughs> and I thought, okay. And so he's, he's walking slowly. And the thing is, his eyes are fixed on me. I, it's like, I, I don't think I know you, you know? <laughs> and the closer he gets, you know, he, I see that his lips are moving. He's saying something. And, you know, sometimes we might run into people we think, I don't know if they're, they're in the right mind. No, this person looked completely normal. <laughs> and he's talking. And the closer he gets, I start to hear something of what he's saying. He is cursing at me. And I just don't know what's happening. And so I started to get a little stunned, you know, and I'm just kind of sitting in my car and I'm hearing him. And he walks right next to the passenger window and he leans over with his skateboard and he starts to do one of these while he curses. <laughs> like, my car is not going to flinch, but okay, you know. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there and, you know, it's one of those things. I don't know if you've ever been there where just like you're, you're, you're happy. You're looking forward to where you're going. You're living your life. And all of a sudden, something happens where time stops. And I just think, I do not want to be loving to you right now. You know? <laughs> I want to end you. you know? And I'm just sitting there. I'm just like holding the steering wheel. And he's just like barraging me, right? And like antagonizing me. It's like, what do you want me to do? And I'm sitting there, and it's just like, I just imagined, as I was like, man, we didn't have a cloud in the sky. It was one of those beautiful Sunday, Saturday afternoons in the mission. And, and yet I thought, man, it would be awesome if just like, just a low voltage lightning bolt just came down and <laughs> struck him, you know, just enough to stun him, silence him, you know. Justice would be served. It would be wonderful. And just sitting there, and it's like, and he just keeps going. And I don't know how long it was, but it felt, it felt long. And maybe he got to his point where he was satisfied. He just props up, just keeps on walking. And I thought, what in the world? I'm driving, I park, I am tense, I am upset, and I'm like, I'm gonna preach? What? Man, have you ever been there? David was doing the right thing. He was kind and friendly. He utilized what he had for someone else's benefit. And all of a sudden, he's met with high degree of antagonism. You know what he does? He hears this. His messenger comes back. He's thinking, perhaps provisions on the way. He, he, hears, he hears what Nabal said. Men, grab your swords. He wants a fight, he'll get one. 400 of you are going with me. 200 stay with the stuff. Let's go. He straps on his own sword. He starts making his way to Nabal's house. The servants, who most likely heard what Nabal said, see David and his men making their way down. They start panicking. <laughs> it's over. They go over to Nabal's wife, Abigail, the more reasonable one. And she puts into action a very wise plan. Because what she does is she ends up hearing this, sees this. And, and this is in a culture in which it is very patriarchal. But she steps in and intercedes. You know what she does? She collects 200 loaves of bread. She, she has five prepared sheep 
already ready to eat. She, prepares, she gets them. She gets two wineskins, we're told, which is two containers of wine. Then she gets desserts, raisin cakes and fig cakes. And she starts to collect everything that she can. And she starts to say, go intercept David. And then she goes and she gets herself ready. And as they're making their way, this is what we're told David is thinking. We're told in verse 21 that David had just been saying, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. And he's walking down. Then he says, what is revealing? May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. It's on. (laughs) And he's not joking. He is now fully committed to annihilating this house. And we have to understand that he, David, where was he? Where has he been for the past several years? He has been under incredible pressure. And in every move he's made that we've explored together, he has made the right decision. He has turned himself over to God. He has made the sober, wise decision. In every move, it's almost as if he has not done anything wrong. And yet he got to a point, a tipping point. He couldn't handle it any longer. And the ball unwittingly had what? He had opened the can to this enormous pressure that had been building, all his frustration, all his anger. It's almost as if David said, you are now going to receive it. You are my relief valve. Get ready. It's coming. You're done. Self-control, gone. I can't handle this anymore. This unjust situation in which I've been unfairly treated, I've been doing what's right every single step of the way, and it just keeps coming at me. Every way, I, every angle in my life, it just keeps coming. I don't get what I deserve. This is the last straw. This is the last point. I'm going. It's over for you. That's where he's at. He has gotten to the end of himself. And what happens is we're told that Abigail, when Abigail, in verse 23, we're told Abigail saw David and she quickly got off the donkey and bowed low before him. And she fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men you sent. She, she shows, she now starts to personify wisdom itself. You know what she does? She steps in and she says, all the anger you're about to send on my husband in our household, send it to me. Please for, forgive me. In fact, and then what does she do? She empathizes. Look how she diffuses and de-escalates. She emp- you're right to be upset. Everyone knows he's in the wrong. And then she throws her husband under the bus. (laughs) What does she say? She says, he is a wicked and ill-tempered man. I've known this my entire life with him. That's the idea. In fact, and, and this is interesting, he is a fool, just as his name suggests. Because in Hebrew, his name literally alludes to a fool. Why would they do that to him? But oh well. So 
I never even saw this young man. Look at what she continues to say. She says, now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let's call it what it is, what you're about to do, but he has interrupted you. Let all your enemies, and because of this, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. Listen, here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. What does she do? She says, firstly, Please, I ask for your forgiveness. You're right to be upset. Don't descend to his level. We all know where he's at. Don't do that. Have some food. (laughs) Receive my my present. Stop and eat. You are innocent. Don't change that. You have done nothing wrong. What my husband said, not true. You're innocent. Don't change that. Don't do this. And then she turns a corner and she appeals to him in a rather profound way. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. You, David, are a man who has continually demonstrated what it looks like to let God handle your conflicts. To not take things into your own hands. But to let him procure justice. You have shown that time and time again. Don't move out of that place. Stay there. It's not who you are. Remember who you belong to. God has you secure. He'll take care of this. And when the Lord has done all he promised, which he will, and has made you leader of Israel, look, don't let this be a blemish on your record. And then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. I know you are so filled with passion to do this. I know you hit your tipping point, your break point, and I know you think it might feel so good to do this. But years down the line, the consequences will linger and the burden will be yours to carry. This will harm you more than help you. Remember that. And then what she says, she says, and when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. What a great risk I have taken in stopping you. Please, don't forget this gesture, this risk. Abigail couldn't have been more effective. Her words literally stopped him, illuminated something. David responds, David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. He sent you, you, A stranger to me, but not to God. He sent you to me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear, I I tell you, by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. Though he is cooling down, he is still pretty charged. 
And then David accepted her present and told her, Return home in peace. I have heard what you have said. We will not kill your husband. This account tells a significant amount about how God, if we could say it this way, God longs, longs to stop us from making major mistakes that will harm us. And oftentimes he will send roadblocks, frustrations, points of correction. It might be internal discomfort. It might be external. But he longs to say, no, 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 you do, don't do this. Don't do this. You will harm yourself here. What else does it show us? When we take justice into our own hands, we have the propensity to overcompensate. To overdo it. It makes it difficult. It is better. Let the Lord deal with it. And yet, there are some things that I think we might want to glean here. See, I just want to put these thoughts on the board for us. This example gives us something of a reality check. See, we are all susceptible to losing our self-control, aren't we? David had hit his limit. The proverbial final straw on the camel's back had landed. Ah, Pastor Terry, when I, especially when I was younger, would oftentimes tell me, listen, we all have buttons that if they are pushed... It is our undoing. And none of us, I don't think any of us would ever take the position of saying, I have unlimited self-restraint. <laughs> and yet, can you hear me? That we sometimes find ourselves living in such a way that our actions are actually making that claim. We move through situations, circumstances, into relationships, into environments in which we assume we walk out unaffected. And we consider someone, for, for, for example, somebody has told me, listen, the, if we could hear it this way, David had the luxury of having to walk down that hill to Nabal's house with his sword to carry out what he wanted to do. We don't have such a luxury. You know why? It is so easy to just let a text go a response to a Facebook comment, a tweet released. <laughs> it happens. We don't, it's like immediate. We have limitations. And here's the thing, the smart move is to admit them. Not out of a point of defeat, but out of a point of now utilizing that insight to compensate for our weaknesses. That is why it is good to have boundaries for ourselves. It is good to think about maybe, maybe protecting ourselves in certain situations or circumstances. What we're walking through to maybe be a little bit more thoughtful of the environments we allow ourselves to be exposed to. Or even how we walk into them, through them. David had a complete stranger come to him. Sometimes for us, wisdom looks like cultivating friendships in which we say to them, you have permission if you think I'm going to make a bad move, you have permission to stop me in my tracks and challenge me. Because I trust you love me. And I trust you will look out for me. And I admit, there are times I am weak. That, that is the way to start building a healthy life. Secondly, this is rather practical. We might see it a little bit too simplistic, but... 
Sometimes it's best to stop, eat, and rest. Sometimes it's best to stop, eat, and rest. This is exactly what Abigail did. Stop, David, please. Have some food. Rest. This is, you know, it's one of those things. When the fire in our soul is taking control, it is best to stop, eat, and rest. It is best to stop, eat, and rest. This, if we might think, ah, you know, that's just like, that's too easy. That's too easy to say. Listen, hang with me for a minute. It is good for us to consider our energy levels, what's actually happening to us physiologically. There was a, a man named Daniel Goleman who is a psychologist who received his degree from Harvard. He is known for his, um, his, his coined phrase of emotional intelligence. In 1995, he came out with this book by that title. He's written for the New York Times and he's respected. He's an authority in that realm. He wrote a book, Focus, that he describes, when we lose self-control, he says, we are under a neural hijack. I found this somewhat fascinating. This is what he says. He says, such emotional hijacks are triggered by the amygdala, the brain's radar for threat, which constantly scans our surroundings for dangers. Okay? If we were to see a graph of our mind, the amygdala is a lower part, the lower region of our brain. The prefrontal cortex is the more rational side of us. It's right behind our forehead. And he's saying, listen, there, that, the amygdala, it's his job is to scan everything for danger. Always. Where's the danger? Where's the danger? And then he says this. When those circuits spot a threat or what we interpret as one, and then he says, which they are often mistaken, something happens. A superhighway of neuronal... Circuitry running upward to the prefrontal area sends a barrage of signals that let the lower brain drive the upper. Translation, they jam our more rational side and they take over. And under this hijack, he says, this is what happens. What happens is our attention narrows, glued to what's upsetting us. Our memory reshuffles, making it easier to recall anything relevant to the threat at hand. We now start to collecting everything inside of us to justify what we're about to do. And he says, our body goes into overdrive as a flood of stress hormones prepares our limbs to fight or run. We fixate on what's so disturbing and forget the rest. The stronger the emotion, the greater the fixation. Have you ever been there? Where we find ourselves almost glued and we decide whether we fight or we run, we are now driven not by control, but by something else altogether different. What does this mean? This mean, this, this is the reason why I found it fascinating is because he puts into scientific language what the scriptures say throughout the entire book of wisdom, which is known as the book of Proverbs, that any decision made in haste is not a smart one. That the best thing to do is to delay the decision, step back and observe, evaluate, bring counsel in. To rationally think things through, to invite something of God's wisdom into the situation. That is what the ancients have been saying for years on end. 
He's saying physiologically, this is true. Because he goes on and he says, you know, the best way to get out of this is to give ourselves energy and space. Energy so that we can recapture rational thought. Space so that the hormones can subside. We need to stop, eat, rest. What would this look like? It means we need a plan. It means that in our marriage, for example, we would have what we would say diffusing terms. In the middle of an argument, there are code words that are thrown out there, basically saying, I don't know if I can make it through this conversation without hurting you and me. Can we stop? Can we delay? Maybe we're not in the best place. We'll have it, but not now. Sometimes those conversations that are prevented from escalating end up preventing an enormous amount of pain that lingers. Stop. Let's take a step back. Other times, maybe it's in our work environment, perhaps at our own table or in our office, or maybe we get into the habit of carrying some sort of healthy snack, some water. Someone said, you know, before we respond, maybe we take a drink of water. Maybe we take some healthy snacks. Perhaps we walk around the office. <sighs> Man. Oh, I want to react so bad right now. Help me, help me think this through. Help me, help me take a step. Maybe we walk around the block. Maybe we walk around outside. Perhaps we delay. Maybe we put something of an obstruction behind our email. We say, nah, I'm not going to send it yet. Think this through. Because very few decisions need to be made immediately. There's always room to stop, step back, reconsider it. That, that is what this shows us. But second, thirdly, this is, and this is what I would say is actually mo- what I feel is most significant to you and I, to you and me. Is that in Christian faith, what else does this show us? In Christian faith, self-control is received when we surrender ourselves to God's way. This is, this is important. If we could hear it this way, the antidote to lack of self-control is spirit control. Every other philosophy of life that we would look at, honestly, that value self-control, they speak of attaining and straining towards a point of ascension. It speaks of straining and exercising ourselves to a point where we now have controlled and mastered ourselves in such a way. And yet, Christian faith speaks of something radically different. It speaks of God not saying, ascend to me, but of God saying, I will descend to where you are at. I will step into your weakness through my son, Jesus. I will clothe myself in humanity. And I will demonstrate what love looks like, what grace looks like, and patience and kindness and long-suffering and self-control. And on the other side of the grave, after he returns to life, you know what he does? He goes to the disciples and he says to them, you who believe and trust in me, receive my spirit inside of your soul. And let your life Be spirit-driven. And that will produce many different types of character traits that reflect God. It's a beautiful opportunity. The antidote to lack of self-control is learning how to be spirit-controlled. What does this look like? Well, Paul wrote a letter to one he loved named Timothy. And he said this. He said, look, The spirit of God is not one of fear, but one of power, love, 
and self-control. And I ask to put this up there in 2 Timothy 1.7. That the Spirit of God is not one of fear, but of power. Think about it. Power, love, and self-control. You know what this means? This means that if we're on the brink, whether we are depleted of our own ability to regulate ourselves or we are about to charge down a hill against somebody else, that we have the capacity not to hold on and just strain, but to say, God, will you fill me with your power? Will you help me access the love you have deposited in my soul through your spirit? And will you increase your self-control in my heart? We do not strain. We surrender and receive. That is such a beautiful part of this faith we are either exploring or sharing together. Paul wrote this one more passage in which he says to them, listen, the best way for you to consider this is to consider what happens when, when you start to live God's way. And this is the message translation. He says, what happens when we live God's way? Well, he brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart and conviction that basic holiness permeates things and people. We see God everywhere. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life. And then here's this phrase, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. When we start to develop patterns of praying, when we're walking around the office, it's not just to let our hormones reset. It's to say, God, give me your spirit or activate the spirit you have poured into my soul. Lord, help me develop love and compassion that I don't have. There is no way I could ever claim having love for this person or that person in my own self. But you do. And you have the ability to strengthen me in it. And you have the ability to help me grow into a person who now models this. Would you do this, God? Would you give me wisdom? I want to behave that way. I want to put on the sword and walk down that hill. Oh, I want to so badly. But would you stop me in my tracks? Would you help me step back? Would you help me nourish myself, rest? And would you activate your power, your love, and your self-control inside of me? The more we do that, the more we pray throughout our day. We read his word. We invite people into our lives. We draw near to him. The stronger we become, not in ourselves, but in everything he wants to give us. May that be the case. May his spirit dominate how we interact. And may we grow into this way of life. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving and Van's going to come share a closing song meant to help us reflect in light of everything we've shared, how we could apply this. And so I'm going to pray. 
and, uh, and then we'll interact together. Lord, we just thank you for your grace. I thank you that you um, are well aware of our weaknesses and you never condemn us, shame us. Instead, you embrace us and you give us what we lack. You give us what we could never attain on our own strength. And you give us the privilege, God, of getting to receive your love because of what your son did. I pray that you would help us learn more and more how to live according to your way, not ours. Help us be honest with ourselves. Help us learn how to nourish this life you've given us, this body you've given us. We pray, God, that you would build a healthy life in us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.